Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's just pray now. Heavenly Father, the work of, of applying this text, this ancient text to our life, is a work of your Spirit. Uh, the work of leaving this place transformed uh, to love and serve, to be salt and light where you would have us, uh, is a work of your Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, strength and joy to obey. Would you come now and fill us, illuminate your inspired words for us that we might be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, our text today forms the conclusion to the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. We are, I don't know how many weeks, nine, ten weeks into this thing and we're done the introduction. Like we should pat ourselves on the back. We did it. And it's worth at this point just kind of giving us a bit of a recap. Where, where we've been so far. We started on the first week, our very first Sunday uh, publicly in this space. We started by saying that how we read the Sermon on the Mount matters. That if we read this as Gandhi has read this, as communist governments have read this, uh, then we will not be changed by the Sermon on the Mount. If we read the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus being the authoritative son of God, and then all of a sudden the sermon has weight, has power, can transform us. Indeed, to read it that way, as coming from Jesus, the authoritative preacher, is the proper way, I would argue, to read it. Any other reading just won't do. And then we went from there to see Jesus give us the, these macarisms, right? These, these blessed are or flourishing statements. Uh, in keeping with other wisdom teachers of his age, Jesus is giving us a picture of the good life. And we saw at times that seemed quite paradoxical, didn't it? Blessed are you who, who mourn. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Who hunger and thirst. Yet we trust, and Jesus showed us, why this is indeed flourishing. And then last week, finally we saw, as we'll see this week, as we go public with our faith... We will inevitably, it's promised to us, Christ City, it is promised to us that we will face persecution. Slander, physical persecution, you name it. If last week the emphasis was negative, was, was sort of, this is what's going to happen to you, this week the thrust of the text is much more positive. This is what we do. If last week was defense, this week our text is, is offense. In fact, our text this week is all about the tremendous power and responsibility that comes with being these kingdom citizens. That comes with being swept up in the mission of God. And to illustrate the role that we are to play in this world, Jesus will liken you and he'll liken me to two things. Salt in the earth. And light 
in the darkness. Salt in the earth or the world and light in the darkness. And because those two metaphors are not immediately obvious to us, here's how we're going to unpack this text. Really simply, three points. One, the need for salt and light. The need for salt and light. Two, the work of salt and light. What does this mean to do this? The work of salt and light. And then thirdly and finally, the end, the end of salt and light. The first question we need to answer is, what do the metaphors of salt and light assume about our world? Why do we need salt and light in the first place? Our text began, and you saw that in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. Now, now hopefully, I, I'm, I'm going to assume something here. We all know what salt is. Unsure. We all know what salt is. Salt makes our food taste better. We put it, at least where I grew up, on our sidewalk so we don't slip uh, in, in the winter. Right? Salt preserves things. We, we all know what, what, what salt is. This past week, my, my middle son has an infected toe. This is too much information. I'm going with it now. I'm committed. And he had to soak his infected toe in salt water, right? Because it purifies, right? We, we know what salt is. In the ancient world, salt had a, a sort of starring role. Salt plays sort of like a, 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 a sort of supporting role in our culture. But in the ancient world, salt had this, this starring role. Uh, in a world without refrigeration, there was no like, like taking a bite of an apple and just putting it in the fridge. Although, who, who does that? Right? Finish the apple. Be a man. Finish the apple. There's no refrigeration, right? And so in the ancient world, they needed something to preserve food, right? And so they needed salt to draw out the moisture and at the same time kill the bacteria that would come with putrefying food. Salt in the ancient world was synonymous with permanence. And so much so that when covenants were made, and we see this actually in the Old Testament, when covenants were made, they'd be called covenants of salt, and the idea was, is that this covenant being made here between two people or two nations was lasting, was, was permanent. If you even read about Israel's temple worship, you'll find that they're forbidden from putting honey or leaven, yeast, on the offerings. Because why? Sugar spoils eventually. It putrefies. Yeast, leaven, again, putrefies. But salt keeps. And so Israel was instructed to put, put salt on, on their grain offerings, just to give you one example. We, we see this all throughout the Old Testament. If we consider what this metaphor implies, what Jesus is telling us this morning, and this is kind of jarring, Jesus believes that our world is one that on its own, by itself, untouched, tends towards rottenness tends towards putrefaction. Jesus believes, this seems obvious to me, that we live in a world not on an upward trajectory of, of bliss and progress, but one that's two shades of brown from being spoiled, from being rotten. And I think the argument is only furthered when we consider the metaphor of light. Matthew 5, 14, we read this. Jesus says really simply, you are the light of the world. You are the light of, of the world. Again, a, a bit of context is needed to, to really understand the fullness of what Jesus is getting at here. In the same way we have refrigeration now, we also have electricity now. 
We're enjoying electricity now. How do we banish the darkness? We, we, we flip the switch. We, we turn on uh, the flashlight function on our iPhone, right? Uh, or, really, there's enough light pollution that it's not really that dark ever in, in, in most places. Again, I was at the men's retreat la- last night, and even there in the woods, and it felt like we were like five hours away, we were like an hour away from here. I was like, well, where are we right now? I don't know what to do with this. But even there in the woods, the, the light from the city was still very uh, obvious. We weren't in this, this full and complete darkness. But in a world without electricity, just imagine this for, for a moment. In a world without electricity, without light on command, darkness and night, these things were an ever-creeping presence that, that acted as the visual embodiment of, of fear. Uh, in the Psalms, for example, you won't find like darkness and night being used romantically. Like, oh, what a lovely night for a walk. Like, David doesn't say that. Uh, the psalmists don't say that. Uh, darkness and night are never used romantically. Rather, in the psalms, they are this tangible manifestation of despair and fear and judgment and all things not good. If you've been camping before, and I don't endorse camping by any stretch, but if you've been camping before, you, you, you know this, Right? There's this all-encompassing darkness, if you're deep enough in the woods, that you feel, right? And it's, it's terrifying. Is it just me? But it's, I think it's terrifying. What am I doing here? Why are we in a hotel? This is the 21st century. The metaphor of darkness it, it picks up on much of what Jesus has been saying with salt. Just as our world is prone to decay, prone to, to rottenness, it is also, despite what we think, not enlightened, not walking in the light. It does not see clearly and, and truthfully. It is, it is fumbling around in the dark. A great example of this is Isaiah 59. In Isaiah 59, we read a, a prayer of confession and repentance on behalf of God's people. And I want us to listen to how they describe their sin. Listen to how they describe their state in rebellion to God, not, not walking in step with his purposes. Isaiah 59, verses 9 and 10 says this. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Taken together, the metaphors of salt and light tell us that our world is two things, bent towards rottenness and needs salt, and it's lost in darkness and needs light. At foundation, Christians believe and have always believed this, that the world is not as it should be, that things are not as they should be. And some of us don't need you to be convinced of this. You don't need me to convince you of this this morning. 40 years ago, I would need to do a bit of a harder job convincing you of this. In the heyday of, of this previous century, I would need to work hard to convince you of that. But, but I think all those sort of illusions are now gone. We see an increasingly uh, tribalistic and fractured world every day on the news before us. I don't need to convince you of this. But 
I wanted to start with this point because some of us still believe our cultural narrative that our world is trending upwards. Right? We got Teslas and, and virtual reality. And maybe we're beginning to think, even as Christians in subtle ways, that Jesus and his kingdom are, are, are cool, but not really needed. Like, we're kind of figuring it out on our own here, Jesus. We don't really need you. For our text to make any sense this morning, for it to be, more importantly, obeyed, we need to come to a baseline conclusion that something is wrong with our world. See, there are two wrong ways, two wrong ways to come to this text. Two wrong ways. And you can figure out which camp you're in. The first is this. There are those of us who have peered out our door, right, opened our door. We've seen how terrible things are. How terrible it is out there. And we've promptly closed it and locked it like three or four times. I'll just stay inside. Right? Just stay inside. The other wrong way to come to this text is to downplay the decaying and dark nature of the age in which we live. To write Jesus off then as being overdramatic and needing to have more faith in humanity. So what's the right posture to come to this text this morning? The right posture is to acknowledge the age in which we live and go outside anyways. And bear witness to Jesus anyways. It is rotten and decaying and in darkness. And yet, the call is still to go. I love what one commentator says. The images of being salt and light, and this is on the screen behind me, complete with warnings and exhortations are like a pushing of the young birds out of the nest to fly. And some of you are like, let's just go back to the Beatitudes, right? That was nice back in the Beatitudes. Jesus is pushing us, young chicks, out of the nest to fly, to go. Pushed out of our nest by Jesus. The question now is, what does it mean to fly? Now that we're outside, what should we do here? The second question, what is the work of salt and and light? I want to give us a a definition on the screen, and then I want to spend some time unpacking that for us. So what is the work of salt and light? Here's how I want to define the work of salt and light, like this. To be salt and light in this world is to act as spirit-filled representatives of Jesus' kingdom in proclaiming its good news— And showing its good works. I'll read it one more time because I write slow as well. To be salt and light in this world is to act as spirit-filled representatives of Jesus' kingdom in proclaiming its good news and showing its good works. Let me say two things about this definition. The work of being salt and light involves both, both, always both, Proclaiming good news and showing good works. Always proclaiming good news, speaking, and showing good works. As we've seen, to be salt is to have some sort of of kingdom influence over this world we find ourselves in, this world that is putrefying. Now, how we actually have that kingdom influence can be as diverse as the usages of salt itself. So, So, for instance, salt preserves. Some commentators suggest Christians should act then in delaying moral 
and spiritual decay in our world. Salt also purifies, as my middle son knows. So Christians should act as a, as a purifying agent of sorts in, in this world. Still others say salt adds flavor, right? Nothing worse than under-seasoned food. Salt adds flavor. So some have suggested this means we are to show the goodness of how God created us to live to this watching world. We add flavor in otherwise bland world in, in the goodness of God's creation. It, it might be that Jesus has all these meanings in mind. And I've read every commentator, it feels like, on this text this week, and they all say something a little bit different here. It, it might mean that Jesus has all these meanings in mind. But whatever the case, I think this salt metaphor becomes very clear for us as we consider it in view of the light metaphor. Like these metaphors are intentionally being paralleled for us. And the light metaphor, the usage and meaning of light in the Bible, is something that is abundantly clear. Something we don't need to guess at. One of the most prominent places we see the metaphor of light in the scriptures is in the prophecies of Isaiah. In Isaiah. In Isaiah, uh, the dawning of a light, this language of this dawning of a light is a clear reference to the mission, to the mission that God's people have to bring the glory of God to the nations. And so God has given Israel this good news, and now Israel is to take that mission uh, to Gentiles like, like you and I. It's this clear reference to God giving this mission to bring the glory of God to the nations. In fact, just before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is quoting uh, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 when he said this in Matthew 4. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have what? Have seen a great light have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And listen to what immediately comes after this quotation in Matthew 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is this light. And the preaching of his kingdom, repent and believe, is, is the coming of this light. John's gospel picks up on this time and time again, that Jesus is the light of the world. Our job then is simply to reflect the light of Jesus. Reflect the good news of, of, of Christ. We, we carry on by the Spirit the ministry of Jesus. So if we could summarize. The metaphors of salt and light tell us, tell me, tell you, that we are Spirit-filled kingdom ambassadors. We act like salt in, in preserving and purifying and adding flavor. And we act like, life, like light by living out this whole person righteousness of the Beatitudes in word and deed. We act like salt and light by living out this whole person righteousness uh, of the Beatitudes in word and deed. Now some of you might say this. Maybe you're reading the text really closely and you caught this. Verse 16 said this. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Your good works, right? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You might say, Jake, there's nothing here about uh, proclamation. There's good works here, right? It's that classic apocryphal, uh, not helpful quote, right? If necessary, what, how does it go? Do you know? Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. 
The person typically attributed to that quote never said that. Not biblical, not helpful. Here's what I want to say. The Bible speaks really comprehensively about what it means to be salt and light. And so Paul can say in Colossians 4, when he encourages us in a text about evangelism, he can say in Colossians 4 this, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. He's talking about the effectiveness and the attractiveness of our speech. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And Peter When Peter writes about us proclaiming the message of moving from dark to light, this gospel of of being dead in our sins, in the darkness, and moving now to light, Peter talks like this, but you are a chosen race, a a royal priesthood, rather, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you may proclaim, speak, speak, The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So being salt and light means we speak like we're a part of another kingdom and we act like we're a part of another kingdom, a different world. All the while living in this kingdom, living in in, in this world, in this age. See, this is the needle that, that the Christian is called to thread. This is the tightrope that the Christian is called to walk. A really uh, interesting example of this is found in this second century letter. In the second century letter, uh, the author writes this. I want us to hear how he talks about Christians. So just 100 years you know, from, our, from our Bible, this is, how he's, this is how he's talking about Christians. Christians are not distinguished... From the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. Christians are normal, for the most part. But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, At the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship, of a different citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. He's talking about this ancient practice of literally throwing your kids out if I didn't want them. Just leaving them there to die. It's ancient abortion. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. For these early Christians, being salt and light was being in the world. They weren't wearing weird things. They weren't eating weird foods. They were in the world, relatively normal. Again, I say relatively loosely, relatively normal. And yet there were points of cultural distinctiveness. They affirmed the sanctity of life. When it comes to women, they upheld their dignity and didn't treat them as property as was common. When it comes to their relationship to the government, uh, their hope was not in the next political party. 
uh, the, the, the next movement or, or, or revolt. We're just touching the tip of the iceberg of what it means to be salt and light in our world. But the second thing we need to see here is that the work of being salt and light is our work. It is my work and it is your work. The work of being salt and light is not for a chosen few. If you are sitting here in this room this morning and Jesus is your king, the work of being salt and light is your work. It's your work and it's my work. Jesus says this, and this would be very strange. Jesus says what? You, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus says, verse 14, you, you are the light of the world. Now, because we live in an individualistic age where we're used to being the hero of the story, we read that and be like, yeah, that's right. That's about me. But in Jesus' time, this would have sounded quite, quite strange. They would have thought of, of other things being the salt and light. They would have thought things like Israel the nation, Israel the people as being the salt and light of this world and in this world. Or the law, the, the, the Torah, as being salt and light in this world. Or, or the temple as being salt and light in this world. But Jesus does not misspeak. He is not being flippant when he says, you are the salt and light of the world. How can this be? One of the key themes of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is doing a new thing. That now, because Jesus has come, empowered by his spirit, he is doing a new thing among his people. And, and his glory will be seen, not just in the temple, and not even through a nation any longer, but we will be seen in his people, gathered from all corners of, of, of the world. His people brought together in him, shining his, his light. See, the same Holy Spirit that has produced in us and is producing in us these beatitude traits. You remember those things? We just talked about them. The same Holy Spirit who is making this true of us, we don't just try hard for these, is the same Holy Spirit who, who makes us salt and light, who empowers us in our mission to be salt and, and, and light. The amazing promise of the Bible, and it's amazing. And there's a danger here that we'll miss this. So let me say this very slowly. The amazing promise of the Bible is that God himself, God himself will dwell in us by his spirit and we will become roving dispensers of salt. Individual lighthouses of God's glory. Just meditate upon that for a second. We see the necessity of the Spirit in empowering mission so clearly uh, later in Matthew 10. Again, uh, Jesus talks about persecution. But, but listen to how he talks about persecution and the role of the Spirit in the midst of this. Jesus said, says in Matthew 10, 16 to 20, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. There is no locking the door and hiding behind it. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's a, a different sermon. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, when it comes, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. What you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Verse 20, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. 
Persecution will come. And not only should we be prepared for it, but in the midst of it, we will have an opportunity to be salt and light for Jesus because, because the Spirit is speaking through us. The Spirit is working through us. This past week in in preparing for this sermon, I was listening to a guy named Preston Gordon. Uh, He's an associate pastor at St. Peter's Fireside downtown. An amazing gospel preaching church that I'm deeply, deeply thankful for. And Preston Gordon uh, said something that I love. He said something to the effect of of this. The Christian light is not self-generating. The Christian light is not self-generating. Jesus says simply, you are the light of the world. By my Holy Spirit, I have made you a light. I have put this fire inside of you. Your job is to simply gather the kindling. Just be ready. Our job is to be faithful. Again, at the men's retreat this past weekend, we talked about pursuing Jesus in Bible reading, in serving one another, in prayer. And this morning, Heath is talking about evangelism. Our job is to be faithful in the small things, and the Spirit's job is to light the fire. The Spirit's job is to make that light bright. Our job is just to be faithful. How deep our salt penetrates, up to the Spirit. Not up to me, not up to you. How far our light reaches, how bright it is, again, up to the Spirit. Not up to me, not up to you. And if you are like me this morning, and you are tired and overwhelmed... It is my guess, and I think it's a good one, that you don't always feel like a towering lighthouse. That you don't always feel like a raging bonfire. You don't always feel deeply influential and successful at your work or your home. You feel more like a smoldering wick. Like there's a little bit of a fire burning, but it's barely hanging on. The good news is that Jesus will say later in Matthew, a bruised reed he will not break. And Jesus, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Jesus is able to take his children, even even smoldering wicks like you and, and, and like me, and coax that fire back to life. To breathe afresh. To renew us in him today. In in his grace and mercy, Jesus takes weak and and, and timid and fearful people like you and me. And he sweeps us up in God's mission. He sweeps us up in what God is already doing. I heard this quote this week. That evangelism is joining a conversation that the Holy Spirit has already started in someone. Evangelism is joining a conversation, I think it's Daryl Johnson, that the Holy Spirit has already started with someone. And he takes weak and broken and imperfect and and not knowledgeable people like you and me, and he includes us in his grace and his mercy. He empowers us. Finally, we ask, to what end are we salt and light? Let's read Matthew 5, 13 to 16 again. And I want to read the whole thing. Matthew 5, 13 to 16 says this. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The ultimate end to which we labor as salt and light in this world is to the glory of God. John Piper, famous pastor, once said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. If you're new this morning, or if if you don't know Jesus, and you're wondering why a group of people, normal-looking people, have planted this church on this corner of Hastings Sunrise, it is so that you would worship God. It is so that you would give glory to God. It is so that you, when you see the mountains behind me, And the ocean and the beauty of creation would not stop with creation, but give glory to the creator, the one who made it. It is so that you, when you work tirelessly on behalf of the marginalized and the oppressed in our day, would do so in acknowledgement of the one who has given humanity dignity and worth by making them in his image. We exist so that you hopefully having felt the love and welcome of the people of God who make up this church, would turn and acknowledge the God who loved you long before we did, who who welcomed you long before we did. See, what ultimately distinguishes the good works of this world from the good works Jesus is talking about is answered in the question, who gets the glory? Who gets the fame? Who gets the applause? Later in the sermon in Matthew 6, Jesus warns us not to act like the religious leaders who do spiritual things publicly, who go public with their faith. That's good. But they do it in order to be praised publicly. They, they do it in order to receive a public commendation. Man, that guy or that, or that girl, she, she's spiritual. Instead, our righteousness lived publicly, has the singular aim of glorifying God. Our making disciples, our our joining what God is already doing, has the singular aim of making a big deal about God. God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in our place, on our behalf, that we might have eternal life now. And this leaves us with this clear assessment, if we will, of how we can tell if we're acting like salt and light in our world. We can simply ask, firstly, am I bearing witness in word and deed? And then secondly, are the things I'm doing publicly about making me look good or about making Jesus look good? So for example, in a post-Christian culture like ours, it is hard to see how speaking about Jesus and his goodness at work, in your home, on the street, is about making you look good. Like, there is no worldly upside to to talking about Jesus. There's not. If you want to kill your career, talk about Jesus. you want to get made fun of, talk about Jesus. But this gives glory to God at our personal expense. 
I think one of the ways we act like religious leaders, on the other hand, is when we as a church, we, we join the crowds in condemning something evil. And we should condemn things that are evil. We join the crowds and we condemn something evil. And we never give our Christian reason for condemning it. And in doing so, we get praise and applause. You guys are on the right side of history. But where has the glory gone? To whom has it been given? To us. We are the ones on the right side of history. We are the ones who, who figured it out. Our text leaves us with two options. There, there are two options. Either we commit to living out our faith publicly to the glory of God, or we will be thrown away. Those are the two options of our text. Jesus says, If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In Matthew's gospel, the language of thrown away is always, always in reference to eternal judgment. That is always the point of the thrown away language in Matthew's gospel. In other words, there is no such thing as a kingdom citizen who does not live this out in public. It's like saying, Christ City, I'm a swimmer who doesn't swim. I'm a hockey player who can't skate. Last week we learned that there is no such thing as a Christian who will not face persecution. This week we're reminded that that's because there is no such thing as a Christian who keeps a kingdom to themselves. And I want to say that again. There is no such thing as a Christian who keeps the kingdom to themselves. And next week we're going to announce our plans to run Alpha in the new year. Uh, if you don't know, Alpha is a program uh, that where you can talk about spiritual things from a Christian perspective, and you can invite people in and have all sorts of wonderful conversations about Jesus and the gospel. And as we were sitting uh, in the meeting about that this week, as we were outlining and strategizing how we're going to do this and pay for it and all those sorts of things, it overwhelmed me. And I said to the guys, I know this is obvious to you, but we have to do this. We have to do this. And I don't mean we have to do Alpha. Alpha is a program. There's lots of programs out there. But we have, as a church, to be about uh, resources, time, money, energy, throwing those things into the mission of reaching people who don't know Jesus. If we stop being about this as a church, I will resign. And you can hire somebody who can shepherd you unto death. The Lord is closing doors of churches who have looked like this inward. And in his grace and his mercy, we want to join him with what he is doing in the city of Vancouver in making disciples, in being salt and light in this city. We have no option here, Christ City. We, we, we have no option. Be salt and light or be thrown away. I want to invite you at this time to stand as we respond Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.